We're currently in the study of James, and last week we looked at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Today, we're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text in its entirety, James 1, 1 through 8, just so that we can get the flow of his word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Trials are like interruptions to regularly scheduled programming. They come unexpected. They come uninvited. Last week, uh, we learned that they come whenever. Uh, there is no time. There is no schedule. A month ago, Susan and I were uh, planning to make a trip. Uh, I had a week's worth of work in the UK, and I thought I'll take another seven or eight days off and we would make our way into Scotland. That was the plan. And the idea was to have a, a leisurely, quiet vacation, not the kind that needs another vacation to recover from the previous vacation. So we were all set to go. Everything was set. The tickets were bought. The reservations were made and all of that good stuff. But five days prior to our leaving, we got a phone call. Uh, Susan's dad had suffered a stroke and he was paralyzed on his left side. Now, her parents were visiting from India. They were with her sister in Indianapolis. Her dad, a minister of the gospel, was on a preaching trip in Cleveland when he had the stroke. So Susan rushed to, Cleve, uh, to Indianapolis to be with her mother, and her sister went to Cleveland to take care of dad. And so one phone call is all that it took our thoughts, our energy, and our focus moved from vacation to immediate care and then long-term care and implications. Given that, parents were just visiting from India with a couple of suitcases and they were supposed to go back at the end of September. Trials come in all different colors, sizes, and shapes, and we experience them. Now, I know the deep struggles of some of you in here. Uh, some of the stories, not all, obviously. That trials are real, they are hard, they are here to stay. And when that happens, the very fact that you are here is evidence that God's word is true. That your faith has not been wrecked. That you are here, that you have endured, that you are proving that endurance produces Christ-likeness. To summarize verses 2 through 4, 
Count it all joy or consider it all joy. Put that down on your credit side of your accounting ledger, not on the debit side. It's something positive. It's a good thing that God is allowing it to come through. Why? Verses 3 and 4. Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And when endurance has its complete work, it brings about maturity and a perfectness, if you will. Now, that same word perfect is what Jesus used in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your Father in heaven. And then he goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The tax collectors do the same thing. And then he goes on to say, so you be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. So trials come about, and if we encounter it right, it is designed to make us more godlike. What on earth does that mean here on earth? Well, Jesus, the exact representation of God's nature and the radiance of his glory is what the writer of the Hebrews tells us. So trials give us an opportunity to be more Christ-like if we encounter them well. Trials will give us an opportunity to be more Christ-like. And therefore, it's a positive thing. Now, pain for gain is not a foreign idea, right? We do it all the time. Uh, I go to the gym. I don't particularly care about it, but they say it's good for me, so I go uh, religiously about three times a week. Now, you obviously cannot stare at people in the gym, but in, from the corner of my eye, I kind of like to watch these weightlifters, you know, the guys with these big biceps. Watch them do their thing. They lift these very, very heavy weights. They grunt, they make all these noises. <laughs> and you wonder, what on earth is this all about? Now, wait till you watch them finish their sets. They stand in front of that mirror. Look at that killer physique. <laughs> and a joy washes over their face. And inside they go, yeah, I was worth it. Or think about a mom who's going through labor for the first time in her life. If it wasn't for Eve, this would have been a walk in the park, you know. But now she has to endure all this pain. Uh, but watch her as she cuddles that newborn. All that pain for that bundle of joy. Now you're probably wondering, what does he know about moms and childbirth? You're right. I absolutely don't know anything about it. But I know this, that I watch them go back and endure it all over again for baby number two, three, or four. It's got to be worth it, right? Now, most of us will be willing to endure some trials. You know, kind of like what spinach might be to children's taste buds. Endurable, but a questionable value. Those kinds of trials are all right. I can take it. But there are those deep, deep trials Let's face it, when they come our way, it is very painful because they are hard, they don't go away, and the pain seems to remain. And when that happens, it is very, very difficult to take this long-term view, to take this view that this is designed so that I might be Christ-like. It is very, very hard. Now, you might be wondering, okay, does the Bible have any examples of this? Well, listen to these words in Hebrews chapter 12. Know that Hebrews chapter 11 talks about a lot of people, how they endured, did 
what they did because of their faith, they believed. And then he goes on to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so slow, closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I hope you caught those words. The idea of perfectness, the idea of joy, the idea of endurance. All that James is talking about that we just read a little while ago. So we have Jesus who has set the model for us. So what if it is so difficult to get this count it all joy perspective? What if I don't know what to do when I have this difficult trial? Well, the word of God has not left us without any instruction. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So, if you endure, you lack nothing, but it's quite possible that you may not have the wisdom to go through this. And you may not have the right attitude to go through this. You may not know what exactly to do as you go through this. So, we have to figure this out. First of all, we have to know what this wisdom is all about. And then we have to figure out how this asking God for wisdom really works if it has to make any sense to our lives, isn't it? So, wisdom in the Bible refers to the ability to know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. The ability to live righteously. In other words, the ability to live right before God in a very practical way in the big and the mundane things of life. So let me try to illustrate that for you. Let's say I can recite a few verses from the Bible about words. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, says Proverbs. Another one from Proverbs. Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Or there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. The tongue of the wise brings healing. So I know all this stuff, and that's good, that's knowledge. But wisdom takes just a little something more. It needs a certain understanding and certain insight so that I can bring the right word at the right time to the right person in the right situation. It takes just a little more than me being able to know, right? Wisdom takes insight and understanding. So, let's summarize. Wisdom, then, is a, is a funny combination of knowledge, of understanding, of insight, all of that rolled together that gives us the ability to live right in this world, just the way God would want us to do. So, when you are in a trial, the only one who knows everything is God. The only one who understands everything is God. Therefore, the only one who has perfect wisdom is God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, says the writer to the Proverbs. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. I hope you didn't miss that. It's from his mouth that comes knowledge and understanding. 
And what does that mean? It's from his speech that comes knowledge and understanding. And the Bible tells us that all scripture, all scripture is inspired. In other words, all scripture literally is God-breathed and is profitable for the many things that it tells us. So the, from the mouth of the Lord, the word of the Lord, comes knowledge, instruction, and wisdom. Now that's wisdom. Now wisdom also in the Bible we find is tied to fear. Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The fear of the knowledge, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So when the Bible talks about fearing God, what on earth does that mean? It means having a certain reverential fear, a certain respectful fear, a fear that makes you want to take God seriously. Now, even that is not a foreign concept. We do it all the time. We do it with things. Take electricity, for example. It warms your food, it washes your clothes, it dries your clothes, it keeps you cool in the summer, it lets you do all kinds of things. But it would be very foolish for us to stick our two fingers into an electric socket. Right? We would take that seriously because of the enormous power, even though it can do us a lot of good. Now that is dumb electricity. Think about God who's all-powerful, who's sovereign, who's wise, and who's all-good. His thoughts towards us is always loving kindness and compassion. Where else would you go? How else would you deal with him other than respectful, healthy fear that makes us want to take him seriously? So if you don't fear God, you're not going to take him seriously. If you're not going to take him seriously, you're not going to have his point of view and if you're not going to have his point of view, you're not going to have the wisdom to endure through these trials to become more Christ-like. So, the question then becomes, what do you do? So, if you lack wisdom, verse 5, ask God. Ask God. Now, the word ask that's translated has a range of meanings. It means to beg, to crave, to desire from God to really ask him fervently. That's the idea. So what happens when you crave wisdom from God? First of all, you're willing to hear from him and listen to his point of view, right? That's what wisdom is all about. And we have to pray, obviously, that's the first step, to really ask fervently and earnestly to pray that the Holy Spirit would bring the right thoughts and understanding to our hearts to give us the wisdom that we need to endure these trials. Now, we also saw that from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So craving God's wisdom will also mean seek his point of view in his word. Can we find examples of people going through similar situations that we are going through? That would be one way of understanding God's wisdom from what he has spoken to us. And then the Holy Spirit lifts the truth from the pages of Scripture, imprints on our hearts, and gives us what we need to do to follow through with trials. You also have brothers and sisters who are walking the life of faith. You can ask them, but be careful. Don't ask them what they think you should do. 
Ask them what they think God thinks you should do. Because God's viewpoint is what we are really after. Crave, crave for God's viewpoint. Second, we saw that if we do, if you really take him, if we do that, if we ask God, if we crave for it, we'll also take him seriously. Even if it is something hard and it doesn't quite make sense. The question then becomes, all right, so if I do all this, will he really give me all this wisdom? The Bible says, yes. He gives generously, verse 5, which then means that he is not going to withhold anything. He's going to give generously. Remember Solomon, when he was asked, what do you want? Uh, he said, give me an understanding mind so that I can govern your people. That's what Solomon wanted. So God said, all right, you didn't ask for riches, you didn't ask for long life, and you didn't ask for the life of your enemies. So I am going to make you wiser than anyone before you or after you. And if that, as if that was not enough, he said, all right, I'm going to throw in some riches and honor that no one is going to be able to compare with you. God gives wisdom. If we crave for it, he gives it generously. He also gives it without reproach, verse 5. There is no reviling. It's not like God is sitting up there, you ask him, and he's going to find out whether you're naughty or nice. He's not like the parent who's thinking, well, how many times do you want to come and ask me for this very same thing? No reviling, no reproach, no belittling. He gives wisdom generously, and he gives wisdom graciously, even when we don't deserve it, if we only ask for it. What else do we find? Verse 6, uh-oh, there is a condition here. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now, we got to understand what this faith is all about and how does it really work in practice. Right? Faith is a word that is often misunderstood, misused, misapplied. Let's look at it. If you look at all those people listed in Hebrews 11, which is your classic hall of fame of faith, the book where we normally go to for faith, you'll find some succeeded, they accomplished a lot of things, some spoke for God, some were tortured, persecuted, all of that. But there is one thread that's common to all of those people. They listened to God and took him at his word. They listened to God and took him at his word. They did not obey him as legalists with a checklist saying, done, 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 done. That's not what they did. They obeyed him because they trusted the one who asked them to obey. And there is a big difference. If you love the one and trust the one who asks you to obey, then that obedience becomes one out of flowing out of your heart than being legalism. And the evidence of faith, obviously, is obedience. There is a wonderful story in Luke chapter 5. If you would turn with me, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through about 7, that shows this relationship between faith and obedience. For all of you fishermen out there, this is a fish story. Verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the, lake of, the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which are Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. 
and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here you have a Bible study going. Jesus is preaching. People are pushing in, pushing in towards the water. He sees a boat. Simon, I want to get into your boat. Gets on the boat and continues his Bible study. I'm sure it was a great Bible study from the great preacher, right? So then what does he do? Verse 5. And when he had finished speaking, so the general Bible study is over, he said to Simon, he gives him a word, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He says what to do, where to go, what to do, and what to expect. Very crisp, one short sentence. That's what he tells him. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Translation. Jesus, you've got to know this. You know, I'm part of the Zebedee Fishing Corporation, right? In verse 10 it says, and also with James and John, they were partners with Simon. Now, you may not know this, but in the Sea of Galilee, we fish at night, not at day. And also, we fish in the shallow areas, not out in the deep. Now, Jesus, you are a great preacher. You're drawing a lot of crowds. Maybe you should stick to preaching and let me stick to my fishing. But, now I don't know whether Simon did that to humor Jesus or whatever else. He said, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So, he did something. He just took Jesus at his word. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And then the boats began to sink. So he did this. And what ended up was a net-breaking, boat-sinking kind of catch. That's what happened. Now think about this. What Jesus asked Simon to do was totally contrary to his experience, his understanding, his background, his learning, and all of his fisherman instincts. Totally contrary. But he says, I'm going to do it. And what's the result? you find he is not counting fish and thinking about his condo on the Galilee. Here's what he's doing. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O God. So he does something that's contrary to his instincts and he discovers something because he took Jesus at his word. Took him seriously, took him at his word and he discovers something. He discovered who God was and who he was in relation to God. That's what happened. And that's what happens when we move in faith. Even if our natural instincts say something, but we, if we stick to God's word, we will discover things like we have never discovered before. Now, you cannot do that by doubting. So, if I say, well, Lord, you know, you may have a point. I want to know your viewpoint. You may have a point. But let me also check with my other buddies here because, you know, they may have some wisdom as well. And then I can compare it and make a good judgment. Now, that is not trusting God. That is not faith. Because what you're doing, what you're signaling by that statement is, look, God, you can tell me your viewpoint. That's great. But I've got these other viewpoints. And finally... I am going to make the judgment. So that is not an act of faith.
So the question really becomes for us, the big question on the floor, the question that we have to answer is this. Even when we listen to the word going against our instincts, do we trust the one who is going to call us to obey? Let me take a few examples, some mundane things of life. For example, in Ephesians, we're called to speak the truth in love as we grow in maturity. The other day I was having a discussion, Susan and I were having a discussion, and we got into uh, some kind of a discussion, a serious discussion, call it an argument if you will, and, <laughs> and, and, and I went at it uh, in my typical way, laid out a case like a lawyer would, right? Uh, this is this, this is that, therefore this is this, and okay, that's it. Uh, well, she was patient, she listened to it for a while, and then she said, you know, I think we need to enroll you in the Tom Mosley School of Encouragement. If you don't know who Tom Mosley is, he's our dear pastor. His middle name is Encouragement, and his phone number is 1-800-ENCOURAGEMENT, just if you didn't know, and you wanted to reach him. Do we have problems with friends or difficulties in relationships and community groups? God calls us to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Is this real, or is this just for Sunday church service? Do we take him seriously? Do we trust the one who calls us to do things that are difficult? We have to answer the question. Here's another mundane call, very mundane. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Okay, so it's got a quality of life clause there. It's also got a quantity of life clause there, right? I mean, it's going to affect depending on how you obey. Now, there is no condition. It's not saying, well, if you've got a good parent and good relationships, you need to honor your father and mother. It doesn't say, if they were good to you, you honor your father and mother. God is calling us to trust him and obey when honoring our father and mother. It's a mundane thing. But these are the things that we have to think about. Because at the end of the day, obedience will tell you the temperature of your faith. You can say all that you want. I can go around preaching and tell you that I believe, I believe, I believe. But if it's not, at the end of the day, substantiated by obedience, that faith really means nothing. So, what's the contrast? The contrast is with the one who doubts. One who doubts is like the wave we read. Now, a wave does not have any inherent power. If the wind blows this way, the wind, uh, wave goes that way. If the wind blows the other way, the wave goes the other way. So waves are just tossed around. So when trials come, if we don't see God's point of view, and if we don't take that seriously, and if we don't stick to it, we're going to be tossed around. That's what's going to happen. The Bible is clear. And verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That person must not expect anything. Okay, it's not that you won't get anything. In context, it means you won't have the wisdom to endure. That's what it says. There is an instability, because that person is unstable. There is an instability to that kind of life. There is a lack of steadiness to that kind of life when trials come your way. Now, why might that be the case? Because when we face trials, 
when I face a trial, the first thing I want to do is I want relief. Relief from the pain, relief from the burden, relief from the load. That's the first thing I'm going to ask for or look for. So I go look at God's point of view, look at his word, and I see something. Then I turn around and talk to a friend of mine, and he says something slightly different. And if that appears to give me some relief, I am tempted to move in that direction. And tomorrow, if somebody else gives me another opportunity to find some relief, I'm going to move in that direction. What's the net result? I'm going to be oscillating all over the place because I cannot stick to God's point of view. I'm going to be tossed around in the trial. So when you struggle to endure and when you don't know what to do in a trial, we learn two things. First, desperately crave for wisdom from God. Desperately crave for wisdom from God. Seek his point of view and take him seriously. Take him seriously. Second, ask in faith without doubting. Find his point of view and stick to his point of view. Stay obedient at all costs. That is what will allow us to take this trial and that is what will shape us to become more Christ-like. Let me close with an illustration stories that something has happened, something that happened very close to home. A friend of mine was sharing this with me a month ago. He goes to this church. His precious wife and children are a very integral part of our fellowship here in Spring Branch. Something happened in, uh, there in the marriage where something that was unresolved in her life reared its ugly head. And the relationship came to a, an explosion, if you will. So my friend told me that his first reaction was anger, as is typically the case in a marriage. Uh, the person who feels hurt or injured tends to be very angry. He was very angry. He thought, well, maybe I should take the kids and move out of here for a little while so that she can fix her issues. And then we can come back. Let her know that this is real serious. But he didn't follow through with that. Instead, he went around looking for God's wisdom. And another mature brother told him, basically, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. You know that passage, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, etc. But here is how he translated it for my friend. He said, look, your primary role is not to fix your wife's issues. Help her, if you will, do what it takes. But your primary role is to be Christ in your home. Love or seek the good of your wife sacrificially, just like Jesus did, unconditionally, just like Jesus did. Be Christ in your home. My friend decided that he would move away from his natural instinct and go the way of God's point of view. The relationship has found tremendous healing and strength and a blessing that never existed before. They're working through some things. But here's the best part. Those who know their story have been encouraged. And there is someone who got connected to them during this time who came to trust Christ through it all. Now, who on earth can orchestrate all of that? Only our awesome God. 
only he can. Only he can. And all because, all because this friend decided to seek the wisdom from God. God's point of view. And he feared him, so he took him seriously. And he followed through against his natural instincts. He obeyed in faith. And that's what happens when we respond. It enables us to endure these trials so that we turn out to be more Christ-like. Father, we thank you. Thank you for you have not left us as orphans, that you are our fathers, so you lovingly provide for us, care for us, and you give us the wisdom we need to endure the trials we face. We pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that our response might be pleasing to you, that you might be pleased with our response, that in so doing we might turn out to be more Christ-like, that you might be pleased with all of that, and we acknowledge our deficiencies, acknowledge our weakness, and acknowledge that we are fragile, we are fallen, we are futile. Lord, there is not much that we can be proud about. But we are proud about this fact, that we are your children and that you are our God. Thank you. Draw our hearts out as to worship you. As we continue to do that, we ask us.